Here we go. April 1st, 2012, lecture discussion number 63 on the book of Romans. Now, admittedly, last Sunday was a difficult Sunday for me, as you know. Um, we lost a little page last Sunday, and it affected my schedule. And I want to thank everybody who has been so kind to us. And you folks out on the Internet, and um, I'm very grateful to what you have sent and written. Um, and, uh, it's just a tough thing. But I was not able, because of all of that, not able to make much progress as I would have liked, with respect to Exodus 21 and James 2. So I've got to retreat a bit today in order to accomplish that which is necessary, that which unlocks uh, both of those passages. And that is, by the way, very key to understand, is that uh, Exodus 21 and James 2 are linked together. So I have to, as I said, go back up and try to take that on some today. So there, uh, I have to eliminate the confusion that is there and the uh, subsequent resultant errors that uh, so often plague the readers of both James 2 and Exodus 21. Again, they share the same theme. And that may not be readily apparent that they share the same theme, but they do. And uh, which is why I put them together and I do it before we're allowed to move into Romans 5. So that's our process and that's why we're doing what we're doing. Uh, again, if you solve Exodus 21, you're going to solve James 2. If you're reading James 2 and you struggle with it because you can't understand this faith and works and you show me your faith and I'll show you my works or show me your works, I'll show you my faith and all of this faith, faith and works are dead. If that confuses you, it is because you don't know that it has a relationship to Exodus 21 and never conclude that it is in any way conflicting with Romans 4. So that's the plan here, uh, and that's my intent, and that's my hope. And we'll get to it uh, today in the, in the lecture today. But first, and, and yes, another but first. Whenever you hear but first, that means I have uh, unfinished uh, promised business, and, and uh, that's the case again today. I promised uh, a couple of people here that I would address brain injury in greater detail. As you know, we've, uh, we've been coming out of a lecture a series uh, on um, the mind and the brain, uh, the uh, supernatural and the natural, or the metaphysical and the physical, or the, uh, um, the mental entities or, or, and physical entities, however you want to describe it, but it is the mind and the brain, or the soul, spirit, and the body. Either way, you wish you can do that, but I want to, I promise that I would uh, address a traumatic brain in, injury, uh, and uh, at least I'm going to do it in a different way to maybe clarify the issue. Let me repeat a few things along that line. It is a fact, an absolute fact, that the physical condition of the brain affects the quality of mental events. Let me repeat that. It's a fact. If I have a traumatic brain injury, the quality of my mental events will be affected. And mental events, however, are not physical. So I have a physical problem affecting a non-physical entity. I have mental events and I have physical events. Mental events are distinct from physical events. And that is, of course, as you know, substance dualism. Uh, substance dualism says that mental events are not only distinct, but they are of a different substance. They are non-physical. Whatever they are, their substance is completely different. They are a spiritual substance. Physical events, of course, are, are particle-based physicality. 
And for so many people, by the way, the fact that uh, the brain is affected, uh, I'm sorry, the brain, uh, the condition of the brain affects the quality of mental events. For so many people, that's clear proof that substance dualism is false. And conversely, that emergentism is true. Let me put that on the board just because I know I say all the time uh, that if you want to figure out what I'm saying, you have to come ten consecutive times. Ten consecutive times, of course, is not every Ishtar and Christmas. It's ten consecutive Sundays, or I'm going to lose you. Emergentism is the philosophical term that says that the mind emerges out of the physical brain. In other words, the mind is some kind of physical property that comes out of the brain. They don't know what physical property it is, and it doesn't seem to have any physical characteristics, but nonetheless, emergentism says that the mind emerges from the body. So when I use that term, you'll understand that. So again, a traumatic brain injury affects the quality of the mental events, and the, uh, and the physicalists say that is evidence that substance dualism is false and that emergentism is true. And going on, if thoughts can be affected by damage, accident or trauma of any kind, if thoughts can be affected by damage, also affected by fever, correct? Disease. Also affected by pharmaceuticals. Also affected by sleeplessness. True? The quality of mental events are affected by all of that. And, and others, etc., if you will. Then they conclude that the physical brain is the source of the non-physical mind. The physicalists do, or the materialists do, or the reductionists do, whatever name, or the monists do. Monism, as you know, referring to the, the to their position that we are only one thing, and that one thing is physical. We have no other component that is in any way spiritual. We are simply a physical being with no free will. Ultimately, if you are a monist or a physicalist, you end up saying that there is no free will either. How can something that is purely particle have any influence on anything? It's a logical philosophical end. But anyway, their comment, their, or their, thought, their process is, is that if thoughts can be affected by damage and disease and pharmaceuticals and sleeplessness, etc., then they conclude that the physical brain is therefore the source of the non-physical mind or the self or the soul or the spirit. Okay? That's how we, we get here. And very often the physicalists or the monists will say comatose patients um, are an example of a condition that substance dualism cannot explain. Any brain injury, frankly, they will say, is a condition that substance dualism cannot explain. So that's why I said, okay, I'll go ahead and run through this for you in case this is something that you worry about. Because if somebody asks me a question, generally, considering the Internet audience that we have, which is quite large, as you know, and they, that way we don't let them vote and they don't have access to the buffet, but they could run us over easily. It's not even close, as you know. But I assume that if somebody asks me a question, that it, it is a question that many are asked. And since this is the weapon of choice for most of the uh, cessation of existence uh, philosophers, which is evolutionary thinking, by the way, um, paramount, most evolutionists will tell you 
that comatose patients is a, is a good example of a condition that uh, substance dualism cannot explain. So let's ask the obvious questions then. A coma, by definition, is a state of deep unconsciousness. We will accept that. I will agree. A coma is a state of deep unconsciousness. And so the obvious question immediately, what is the condition of the mind during this state of deep unconsciousness? And so I, I, I think there's three choices that you can have. I submit that there's three likely possibilities. There may be more. Some people will combine them. But I will give you the three that I think uh, are the most distinct. Option number one, if, I, if someone is in a coma, what is happening to the mind? Option number one is the mind has ceased to operate. Option number two, in other words, the mind is dead in option number one. I'll write dead. Cease to exist, cease to operate, cease to exist, and is dead. That's option number one for you. That would be the physicalist's are the reductive materialists or the monist position. Option number two, the mind is operable. The mind is operable, but has no means of self-expression. So even though the mind is operating, there is no way for it to express itself. The damage to the physical brain is such that self-expression is impossible or is severely limited to where it cannot be recognized by who? By those who are trying to recognize it. By those who are trying to observe it. In other, in other words, others seeking to find the mind are not able to see any evidence of it. So, it is operable, but it has no self-expression and is not observable to those who are seeking to find it. Number three. Or C, the mind has been severed from the body or ejected or expelled. So the body is there, but the mind has left, or the soul spirit has left. In other words, I am no, the mind no longer is interactive with the body or the brain. It has gone to an intermediate disembodied state, which raises the next question, doesn't it? Where did it go? Now remember, as I've tried to previously emphasize, substance dualism concedes an extraordinary, almost unexplainable interaction between the mind and the brain. Substance dualism willingly concedes that the condition of the brain is essential for high-quality self-expression. To put it in, a, in an analogy, the instrument must have... It must be tuned. If it's a trumpet, it must be have a mouthpiece. If it's a guitar, I've got to have strings. If it's a piano, I have to have keys. I have to have a soundboard. I, the instrument must be intact for the music to be produced and for the sound to be recognized or interpreted as music and not merely noise. Does that make sense? We concede that, the dualistic... Uh, on the dualistic philosophical side. The, the physical condition of the brain is essential for high-quality self-expression. Notice how I said that. Can I get low-quality self-expression? 
Yes, I can. But the instrument, the physical brain, is not the musician. Okay? The musician, the mind, is not... I'm sorry, the mind... Every time I do this, I, I have to have more medicine. The instrument... The physical brain is not the musician. The musician is the mind, if you will, in this analogy. And I realize this is a, uh, this analogy has its flaws, but uh, stick with me. The musician is, is the mind. And the mind is the ultimate source of the music. The mind, however, needs an instrument that is intact in order to be self-expressive. That is, uh, dualistic interactionism. That is how we are designed. However, Although this is acknowledged dependence, and I acknowledge that this dependence exists, it in no way re- constitutes reducibility. And that is very important to you. Irreducibility or reducibility. What do I mean by that? You should know. You've been here for the last few weeks. I'm doing it again just in case somebody walked in for the first time. That's happened. Don't look at them. Okay. Hmm. What does reducibility mean? You can do this. You really can. Or I will beat you. Or Jonas will beat you. Somebody, somebody will. Even though there is dependence between the physical condition and the mind, of the brain and the mind in order to express high quality uh, events, mental events, that in no way, that dependence in no way means that the mind is dependent, I'm sorry, reducible. What I mean by that is the mind cannot be reduced to a lower component. The mind is the mind. It's always the mind. It cannot be reduced in any way to something that is not the mind. Can I, recognize, can I reduce the brain? I can reduce the brain. How low can I go? I can reduce the brain to a subatomic physical particle, can't I? I cannot reduce the mind. Even though the mind of knowledge, I'll give it to you, even though the mind and the brain are interdependent uh, in some way, they cooperate, they, they um, have this... Uh, what's the word I'm I'm missing? Can't come up with it. The mind cannot be reduced. And the dependence is not evidence of reducibility. Put it another way. A non-physical property or entity, the mind, with its self-identity. You have self-identity. We went over this a few weeks ago. You know you're you. And that's critical that you know you're you. And I know me is me. I know that. And the way I know that you're you is that I know me is me. I attach my self-awareness to you. I assume you have the same self-awareness. Self-awareness, subjectivity, self-identity cannot be reduced to the subatomic particles. And therefore, it is a logical mistake to conclude that a failure for the mind to manifest itself physically is evidence that the mind and the brain are identical. Does that make sense? Because they are not identical. One is reducible and one is not. And if you don't think that's the case, try to reduce your self-identity. 
Try to reduce a thought to a particle. Try to reduce love. Try to reduce a memory. Try to reduce an, an idea, an emotion. One is not reducible. One is. Self-expression in a brain-damaged individual, in a trauma, brain trauma victim, self-expression may have ended. They may not be able to express themselves. I have trouble expressing myself. But self-identity is not subject to physical processes. Dualism does not object to interaction or cooperation. That's the word I was looking for. Between. We don't object to that. We agree the brain, physical brain, is the machine and the mind and the machine cooperate. In fact, the dualism insists on this interaction between the mind and the brain. What dualism objects to is reduction. You cannot reduce the mind or the self-identity or the self-awareness or the self, if you will. That is the problem. Okay. Going along this, next, ask the, keep asking questions. Because a comatose condition, I hope I can erase this for you, a comatose condition is really uh, unconscious, deep sleep, right? As opposed to what? Well, what I like, a nap. Which is what I try to provide here every lecture Sunday to as many of you as possible, and I'm highly successful. I should be a hypnotist. <laughs> By the way, the hypnotists are mad at the church because we're stealing their stuff. They have a fake trick that works really well on willing people that mostly are paid in advance, and the church is doing the same thing, pretending what they're doing is real when it's really just a fake trick with people that they pay in advance. How do I know that? That's right, baby. I was one of the paid people. Anyway, that's another... I've become bitter. It's true. Anyway, a nap. A nap is what? Hopefully sleep. And what we're really talking about is duration, right? Not just duration, but manifestation. That's what's at issue with regard to a coma. A coma is also sleep, okay? But it has a it has a deeper sleep to it. The manifestations of the mind may not be observable. Probably aren't. Not always. There are degrees of depth of a coma. So it's a deep sleep of great length as opposed to a short nap or, or, or an evening or a, or a night. So what's the next question? Why do we sleep? Can you imagine that Christ, and that's true, that God Christ could have... Now remember, he's omniscient, so don't be disrespectful. Can you imagine that he could have created us as not needing sleep? He had some kind of rejuvenation system that didn't require it. Why do we sleep then? And it has to be the best possible thing, doesn't it? Because he's omniscient. Why do we sleep? How do we wake from sleep? 
Some of you do not. Seth. That makes his grandfather laugh too, by the way. Why? How do we wake from sleep? What causes the awakening process? What does it? Is it the ringing alarm that wakes you? Is it the flashing light for those who, who have hit the ringing alarm with a hammer? And now you went to the flashing light and you have to get out of bed to turn the flashing light off. Is it the barking dog? Yes, for me and Lori. Maybe not. Is it the rooster? By the way, if you really want to be uh, isolated in your neighborhood, um, get a rooster. What causes the awakening process? What do you think? Do you need anything to wake yourself up? Can you wake yourself up? Do you wake yourself up? How do you do it? What is the steps, the anatomy of the awakening process? Obviously, the awakening function in a comatose victim is inoperable. They are not able to wake themselves up, and others are not able to uh, facilitate the awakening process in any way. I would say to you, the ringing alarm, the flashing light, the barking dog, and the rooster are facilitating the awakening process. But what recognizes those things as a means by which awakening must occur or must be instituted? None of those that I mentioned, the aforementioned, cause wakefulness in a comatose patient. And I submit our minds are significantly involved in the waking system. Another question to consider, grogginess, grogginess, barely can say it, groggy. What causes grogginess? I have long discovered that if I was in a deep sleep and and I was attacked uh, in the middle of the night by an intruder who was playing the bagpipes, I'm still going to, I'm not going to move. There's nothing I can do. Even if I manage to wake up, I have no physical function for a good 30 minutes. That happens. That was supposed to be funny. It will be to some of you later. But I just can't move. And if I do get out of bed, my feet hurt so bad i got to go back. What causes this, what is the relationship, this disoriented state between sleep and wakefulness? But again, why do we sleep? What is the purpose of rest? Why do we eat? Why do we breathe? Let me start writing those down. We have to sleep. If we don't sleep, what will happen to us? If we have no sleep, what happens to us? You will go either completely crazy or you will always what? Die. If you don't eat, what will happen to you? You will die. If you don't drink water, if you don't have water, you will what? Die. Give me another one. Hmm? I have to breathe. If I don't breathe, I will die. I accept the next one as true because how it affects this one. If we don't have light, we will die. If there was no light, 
there would be no plant. There will be no food. Animals would die. We would die. So light's critical. The sun ever goes out, bad things happen. We will not survive in darkness for any extended period of time because it will destroy the food source. It is not coincidental that Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh, the word made flesh, the I am, the ancient of days, it is not coincidental that he calls himself the great Sabbath rest, that he calls himself the bread of life, that he calls himself the living water, and drink from me, you will never die. He calls himself the breath of light and the light of the world. It is not a coincidence that he does that. And all of those things are required for life. He is upon whom we are dependent. That is what he is saying to us. You are dependent on me. You cannot exist without me. He is creator of all things. John 1, we are dependent things. Never allow yourself to delude yourself otherwise. That football player recently that says he doesn't need God to play football. Well, he has a problem logically. Don't delude yourself. Laodicean church in Revelation 3. We are rich and in need of nothing. Well, you need sleep, eat, food, drink, breath, light. Eat food, same thing. So don't be so ignorant to say you are in need of nothing. Because you are so rich. You have a whole bunch of paper. And you need nothing. It has now been established, as you might have known, and most of you or a lot of you are medical professionals. It's now been established that with the use of a brain scanner, it's called fMRI. Functional uh, Magnetic Residence Imaging. that comatose patients that had heretofore no observable mind capabilities are now able to answer questions with an fMRI. They get asked questions and they are told that they're to think of the answers. And the fMRI scans their brain and determines where those answers are being given inside of the brain that is left. When I say it is left, It is because most of it has been destroyed. And so by by changing their brain activity, their thoughts, they are able to talk via brain waves through a scanner. And they are finding them. As a general rule, I think the last time I studied and looked at this, they get about 20%. 20% of everybody in a vegetative state, or or thought to be in vegetative states, are, uh, are thought to be uh, unresponsible, the scans detected self-awareness. Self-identity. Even though the physical condition of the brain was traumatic. In one case, it was, uh, it was devastating. A gentleman had been in a car accident, and I'll try my best, and his brain had been reduced from that size to about this size. And the rest of it was fluid. And through an fMRI, he was able to communicate. They had him think of the answers and they analyzed what part that was left. 
had physical responses in it, electrical, physical, if you will, chemical responses. So the fMRI method can decipher the mind and the brain's interaction. So the mind can think of the answer and light up the brain. And in healthy people, it's 100% accurate, and it's now being utilized on the comatose or the minimally conscious. And the monistic neurologists are astonished by this. Self-identity is remaining in a brain that is the size of a small baseball or even a golf ball almost. And it's now, as I said, being utilized everywhere to the astonishment of the monists who are sure that everything is reducible. The impact has been profound. Now the dualists are not astonished. We've predicted this result for hundreds of years. We recognize what evil things man has done and the impact on it. You're aware of what we call enhanced interrogation techniques. It's been in the news for many times lately because of different events in war, but uh, it's been around for thousands of years. It's called sensory deprivation. Right? Depriv, deprov. Anyway, you get the Sensory deprivation. It's, uh, it is blindfolding people so they can't see. It is covering their hearing so they can't hear very well, even though they can hear some things internally. It is covering their mouth and their nose so they can breathe, but they can't smell anything. They are immobilized. They, are, they have no taste. No data input at all coming into the brain, or as little as possible. What is the result? What will happen to the mind if it has no data input? See, I have data input, don't I? I have physical responses. My eyes are physical machines, and it takes physical particles. Light is a physical particle. It's also a wave, right? So I have light coming into my eyes that then goes through in, through the system and into the brain where chemical responses occur. And those chemical responses are turned by something into meaning and understanding, which, of course, are non-physical. It's called intentionality and intelligibility, as you would remember from previous lectures. But what happens to the mind if there's no data input, not through the eyes, not through the ears, not through the nose, not through touch? Someone was talking to me about this earlier, you know, and he mentioned that they would suspend them in water for days. What happens to the mind if you are doing that to it? What can the mind do in that condition? No data input at all and no ability to express itself. What am I simulating for that person? I'm simulating a trapped condition, aren't I? Which is what? It's a coma. No ability to express itself and no input that is meaningful coming in. What happens to the mind? Why do they do that? What's the reason that these, that these kinds of things have happened to people? They're interrogating them. They're trying to drive them what? Crazy. Because that system is based on the premise that the mind is irreducible and of a different substance than the body. Can you lose your mind? 
Can the mind lose its ability to interpret data? Can the mind, when it is completely immobilized, or when the body is completely immobilized, can the mind still affect the body? You know the mind can affect the body. You do it all the time. You make yourself afraid, even though there's nothing going on. You imagine that something is under your bed. When you're little, my brother would always tell me that there was something in the closet. Because he knew I could look under the bed, and I was too afraid to go look in the closet. Diabolical, yes. But my mind would make my body respond in great fear. We have a wonderful Labrador retriever, Abigail, who convinces herself that doom is coming in the form of almost anything and literally will shake because her mind brings such fear to her when it is incomprehensible that, uh, that anything fearful is, is near. The mind can still imagine, the mind can affect the body in all kinds of ways, even though there is no data input at all. And obviously the mind will attempt to function without incoming information. That is the whole point, right? What does this all mean? What are the implications of all of this? And what is the ultimate result? Let's ask more questions. By the way, how do you solve comatose situations? You solve it by asking questions. It's exactly what I'm doing of you. We spend 37% of our lives in a condition of sleep. What is the result of all of this sleep? What if we didn't sleep? It's a temporary suspension of physical activity. And I ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. What if sleep was not necessary for us to live? It is. God's omniscient. So it's a hypothetical, it has no validity, but I'll ask the question anyway, knowing all of that. What if sleep was not necessary for us to live? What would be the result? What then? What if we never slept? What would happen? Ultimately, this uh, leads to a question of what? That's right, evil. I'm always fascinated by cities that describe themselves as the city that never sleeps. See, is sleep a restraint on evil? Without the suspension of physical activity, how much more evil would occur? And I'll ask more questions. Why do we get tired? Why do we need rest? Why do we grow weary? What is the relationship between tiredness, aging, and death? And, and if you go to all of this down these paths of, of thought experiments, if you will, then the question of when did sleep as it is currently uh, experienced or currently constituted, when did it first occur? And you're now at Revelation 22.5 and Genesis 1.1 through 1.5 and Genesis 2.21. You are where Adam is put into a deep sleep you are put into where darkness is separated from the light and where darkness is eliminated. So you associate sleep with what? Unless you work the swing shift or the night shift at the Alaska Railroad cleaning coaches at age 18, which was the best job I ever had. It was merit-based. The faster I got done, the faster I could sleep. Loved that job. I should have still stayed with it. I think they got rid of me with something of 
less expense and maintenance a machine. Anyway, darkness. God separates the darkness from the light and he calls it good. What's he calling good in that sentence? The darkness? Is he calling the darkness good? No, he's calling the light that separates from the darkness good, doesn't he? So darkness is not good. What is the relationship between darkness and sleep? Darkness has a relationship to what in the Bible? Evil and death. So, what is sleep? The light is called good. What is the origin of darkness? What event caused the darkness? Revelation 22.5, the darkness is ended. Two things are ended in Revelation that are of great significance. One of them is darkness. The other one is what? Seas. There is no more darkness and there is no more seas. What's the obvious question? What is the relationship between darkness and the seas? Because they're both ended and that is not a coincidence. It's not a happenstance. There's none of that. The seas are no more, Revelation 21.1. Darkness is ended, Revelation 22.5. So this relationship between seas and darkness and sleep to darkness and working your way through that will go a long way towards understanding sleep. What's the purpose of it? What it's got? What it's doing? And then the awakening that is there. What is also called an awakening? The great what? Awakening. Who is awakened? What is this sleep and awakening and then the brain trauma and the difference between that which is reducible to subatomic particles and that which is irreducible, that which is not comprised of physical materials. Okay? If you do all of that, follow that path, you will solve comas. Now we have to start the lecture. Is he kidding? Sort of. I don't have a lot of time now. I took longer than I thought. But from last week, I had a list of James chapter 2, and I said I was going to put it on the board, and I didn't have time. I have right here put it on the board, and I don't have time. And hopefully you remember some of the key elements and have begun to put them into your own list. I will do some of them for you so that we'll have it done for next week. James 2 starts out with the problem. The problem is partiality. So when you're looking at James 2, you have to know the context. And the context, number one, is partiality. What is meant by that? He even explains it. Partiality. Got it. How many L's in partiality? Two. I'm right. Partiality, right? That's the key. That's the context. What is the partiality? How is it manifesting itself? It's manifesting itself because I have a rich man or a rich fool, or a rich Pharisee, okay? All of those are, are always involved. Whenever I see the word rich, I start thinking about Phariseeism because the Pharisees uh, were famous and for being referred to as rich and fool. Uh, all of that comes in as opposed to the poor. I have the poor of the flock, Zechariah 11.11, 11, Right? That's very important. Or the poor man. Don't show partiality to the rich man. Remember, the symbol rich is a symbol for what? From the previous weeks where I made this case. What's it a symbol of? It is a symbol for monism. Monistic thinking or, or, or physicalism. That's what it is in the Bible. It is the opposite of God. God calls rich man the opposite of him. That's why this fool comes in. Okay, it is the opposite 
of believing God. It is, it is physically based as opposed to spiritually based. And the poor of the flock, that poor man is always uh, referred to as someone that knows that Jesus Christ is God. Again, Zechariah 11.11. And then there was Leviticus, love your neighbor as yourself, 19.8. Right? 19.18. I hope. Check me out. And then, and then adultery and murder are put together. And then the law of grace or the law of liberty. And then you have if someone says, all of this stuff going on. If someone says something, what's the obvious question? Who's the someone? Why is he saying things? If someone says, and faith and works are dead, if someone says he has faith, and if someone says he believes but does not have works, can this faith save him? Let's go look at that. We'll knock that one out for you so you get it solved, and then you'll begin to solve the rest without me. Which is the plan, right? On the context of showing preference to someone who is rich as opposed to someone who believes. Showing preference to physical uh, events versus spiritual events. Verse 14. What does it profit my brethren if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? Okay? That's a big problem for people. Let's look at it again. What does it profit my brother, if you will, if someone says, what's the first thing you now know? Someone says he has faith. What's your first question? Someone says he believes. Does he? He says he does. Is it true? He says he believes. Does he believe? Why would he say he believes if he doesn't believe? Oh, I know. What is the context? Someone will say that he believes when he doesn't believe because he can do what? He can get your money. It's very easy. We have a tendency to believe people who say they believe. Someone says he has faith, but does not have works. What do you think is being said in that sentence? What does that mean? Who says this kind of thing? Can faith save him? What does that mean? He says he has faith. So, can faith save him? Define faith. He says he believes. Can this belief that he says he has save him? Is it saying that he has faith? Is it declaring him to have faith? Or does it say that he says he does and it says he has a belief? So if he says he has a belief, what must I do? I have to define what his belief is. What if his belief that he has, he says he believes. I have many, many people come to me and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. And what's my immediate question? Who is he? And if I don't get this answer back, if they don't say back to me, he is 
God in the flesh, creator God of all things, they don't say that back to me, then can their faith, their belief in who Jesus Christ is save them? No. He does not have works. What's the definition of works? What's the context? Partiality. Rich versus poor. Physicalism versus doctrine. He says he has a belief, but he has no evidence that he is. This goes right here. Poor of the flock goes through Zechariah 11, 11, goes right to Christ as God. Let's move on. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. What's the obvious question? Who's the someone? Why is he saying this? Is it true? Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Who's saying that? Who says, you believe, but I work? Who says that? You ever gone to a church where the guy came up and said, well, you believe in Christ, but I work. I'm going to say, I have salvation through what? Through my works. You believe in Christ, but I work. You ever gone to a church like that? They're all over the place. What do we call them? Parasitical. Works-based. So the person that says, show me your faith, I'm sorry, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works, that is one of these guys right here. In the context of partiality. Who believes that that's a good position? You have, uh, you have faith, but I have works. What kind of person would ever say that? Who is that someone? And what's the response to that? Well, let's read the response. And James says, And I will show you my belief by my works. Anywhere in this chapter is it saying that you have to have works to be saved? No. And I will show you my faith by my works. I will show you that I believe by doing something. What will he do? What's he going to do? What is, how does James define works? Well, let's go back. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, who's that? That's the poor of the flock. And they are what? Brothers and sisters. And that means they are what? They are poor of the flock and that they believe, they're called a brother or a sister or a believer because they believe Jesus Christ is God. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food and one of them says to you, and one of you says to them, okay, one of you is going to say something to them. What's he going to say? Depart in peace, be warmed and filled. I get this all the time. I will pray for you. Cool. If you're going to pray for me, do it in secret. Don't brag to me about it. Probably your next question is, I will pray for you. That will cost you $3.75. I'm kidding about that. Kind of. 
pay attention to this. If someone says to them, I will pray for you, be warmed and filled. How does James respond to that? I'll repeat how it is actually written. And one of you, who is the you in that verse? That's one of the someones who says. That is one of the someones who says um, that he has faith. That he believes. What does he believe? I can tell you what he believes based on the context. What does he believe in? What, what does he believe in? In the context. He believes in works. He believes in riches. He believes in physicalism. The opposite of belief. Physicalism, riches, is placed in opposition to believing God. You either believe God or you go after physical stuff. That's what riches does. Control, power, physical stuff. Why do you want control over somebody? Why do you want power over somebody? And do you think that stuff is anything but particles? Be spiritually minded. It's not to say that the people who have accumulated through effort a great amount of wealth and share that wealth in a godly way, it is not the wealth, it is the love of the wealth, First Timothy 6.10, right? You love the physical. Okay. The someone who says he has belief but does not have works, can his belief that he has save him? No. And that and and then he says, depart in peace, be warmed and filled. But you do not give them the things which are needed for the body. That's physical. What does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What is the works? The works is taking care of these folks and not enriching yourself. Who is the someone that says this kind of thing? Go in peace. He's all over the Bible. Who's the someone that says, go in peace, be warmed, and then they keep their stuff? Who is that guy? That's the rich Pharisee. And they all fit together. So there's a response. Show me your faith without your works and I'll show you my faith, my belief by my works. Okay? And what's, what's the context of all of that? Leviticus 19.18. What's Leviticus 19.18? Love your neighbor as yourself. Love the poor of the flock. That's how it all fits together. And then you keep going through your list and you'll see, uh, I, you are equal to demons. Who's equal to demons? The someone who says, the someone who says, I will pray for you or I will uh, go in peace. That guy is equal to demons. They both have the same understanding of God. Okay? Then he brings up Abraham and Isaac at the altar or at the mountain, uh, Genesis 22. Exact same place where Christ is, uh, makes sure that his crucifixion occurs. And then he brings up Abraham in Genesis 15 where he's first saved and throws in Rahab and finishes with this wonderful statement that is absolutely true. The body without the spirit is dead. What does that mean? Now, you see the musicians coming up. That fits, so you made it to the end. That fits with Exodus 21. I'll run down Exodus 21 while they're getting up here, because it takes some time. Exodus 21 starts with a Hebrew servant. And it says, a Hebrew servant who serves six years is free on the seventh year. 
Okay? What's that? That's the great Sabbath rest. But the master gives him a bride, this Hebrew servant. And the Hebrew servant says plainly, I love the bride. And I will not go out free. Who are we talking about here? Who is the Hebrew servant that loves the bride and will not go out free? says it plainly. On the great Sabbath rest. And when he says that, he is now taken in public before the city, before the judges, at the doorpost, which is a Passover reference, and he is pierced and he loves the bride forever. Who is that? The pierced one. That is clearly a picture of Christ. Hopefully you see that. You cannot look at Exodus 21 without finding the pictures of Christ. If you do that, you'll miss it all. Exodus 21 begins as Exodus 20 ends. The law of the altar is followed by the law of the Hebrew servant who plainly says. And both are incredible pictures and prophecies of Jesus Christ. How does this fit with James 2? And all of that follows after that is, is within the context of these two great portraits of Christ. And, and I can't say this enough. If you attempt to understand the Old Testament apart from its primary purpose, and its primary purpose is testifying of Jesus Christ, John 5.39, you will fail. You will have error after error, and you will fail. So following the law of the altar and the law of the Hebrew servant who loves, then comes the redeemed daughter. That's the order. And then the manslayer in the place of refuge. And then the killer who kills by treachery and premeditation. Who is the killer that kills by treachery and premeditation? That's followed by he who strikes the father. That's followed by the kidnapper, the strong man who kidnaps people. Who's that? I have these pictures of Christ. This is the order of Exodus 21. And then that's followed by he who curses his father. And then the contending men. And then the beaten slave. Who's the beaten slave? And then the woman with child, and then life for life, and, and then free for the sake of an eye, and free for the sake of a tooth, and then the ox. That is the order. What are those? Those are incredible pictures that are a doctrinal whole. You try to reach out and grab one of them, like the beaten slave out of the middle of that, and say, look here, this, look, this makes no sense. Well, of course it makes no sense. You're taking it out of context, and you don't know what it is. Now, while I was running rapidly through all of that, Exodus 21, hopefully you saw that which connects to James 2. What connects to James 2? And you already know from last week that the beaten slave is a prophecy of the suffering of Christ. Remember, he made sure that he, that he went through a suffering phase. He made sure he went through a crucifixion phase. He made sure that he went through a burial phase and he went through a resurrection ascension phase. He has those phases. And the Hebrew slave who loves is uh, obviously somebody there. Who is he? What phase is that? That's the crucifixion phase. The beaten slave is the suffering phase, right? And they are revelatory of the mind of Christ. They are exposing his heart to you. He loves the bride. He will be pierced for the bride. He will be loving the bride and be pierced forever, right? And he will endure a beating because that's relevatory of the heart of mankind, the haters of God, though the beating did not affect him in spite of your movies. He's got physical expression of what he believes. That's what's going on there. He is expressing physically his mind to us. 
And that is what James 2 is all about. James 2 is about physical expression of what is really believed. When the rich man says he has faith, but then he keeps his money, what does he really believe? That's what's going on in James 2, Exodus 21, physical expression of what the mind is really thinking. Let's rise and be dismissed.